Everyone knows Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication between law enforcement and the community. Over the course of the last year, we have become painfully aware of the very negative headlines national media projected across the country regarding all law enforcement agencies. Over the last several months, and after numerous investigations, we have learned that these negative headlines did not tell the whole story but rather painted a picture designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters wants you to hear all the facts so you can decide for yourself. As these investigations conclude, these stories will be featured on our Truth Matters page on lawmatters1030.org website. Now, let's start the show. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest this morning is Tucson Police Chief Chad. I call you Chief Chad. I got corrected. It's, It's Chief Kazmar. Okay. Now, you just got back from D.C. I did. I want to hear everything. Uh, It was a really special week. It was police week, which is a a time in this country where we take pause and we remember the sacrifice of all the fallen officers from the year before. So it's it's a really special experience to be able to contribute to and to take team members to. But not only did we have, um, you know, thanks to the Tucson Police Officers Association sending members back, and we sent some members back, and the FOP president was back there as well. But we joined something a little special this year. We joined the Law Enforcement United Tough Ride. And what that is, is it's a fundraising mechanism for cops, which is concerns for police survivors. And uh, we, we, we gathered uh, a, a variety of team members from across the department. Uh, and what we said was we took, you know, four, you know, four kind of avid cyclists, me being one of them. And then, you know, the, a handful of folks from across the agency who really, you know, had ridden a bike before, but they, we wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves cyclists. And we said, hey, we, we want to do this journey and we want to help fundraise for Concerns for Police Survivors. And we're going to do this three-day ride. And it's about 260 miles over three days. And you're going to climb about 12,000 miles or 12,000 feet of elevation. And you're probably going to want to quit. But here's the cool that thing. That was uphill? It's, there is nothing flat when you start in Roanoke, Virginia, and you ride to, to, to Washington. It's uphill or it's downhill. And <laughs> so we rode with about 45 different uh, law enforcement, local, state, federal. We rode with survivors. That means uh, daughters, sons, wives, husbands. Um, and it's a really special experience where you, um, there's a lot of suffering. It's a, it's a very difficult ride, but we stopped in communities throughout that journey, different police departments, and we celebrated the loss of their fallen officers. So we would have impromptu memorial services. We met city managers and mayors and chiefs and sheriffs. Uh, we met first year survivors from those smaller departments. So it really, um, it was a really special experience. We raised over twenty thousand dollars with wow. the LEU Tough Ride. Um, That's awesome. But, uh, the, that was the the amount of money we had to raise to participate in that event. So we took we took thirteen team members out there so that were riding bikes. We took four motors, uh, and and two of our spouses went with us to help support. It's a really big. Uh, it takes a lot of a, a lot of organizing to to get that many bicycles out to the East Coast and motorcycles to keep everything safe. The motor officers so. Um, it was um, a life-changing experience for me as the chief, and, and it, it marries a couple things for me. One, uh, mental health and wellness is important to me, and the way I maintain that in this profession is uh, time on my bicycle, time with my family. Um, so I'm an avid cyclist here in town, um, and we've been really focused this last year on mental health and wellness within the organization. And so, to, so the idea was to take members who really weren't avid cyclists and get them to learn about nutrition and Sleep and you know the you know how to ride a bike safely through town, uh, and really the culmination of all these things, and you know law enforcement and celebrating our profession and that, that there's risk and 
nearly 250 you know officers were killed last year in the line of duty um so it's it's a it was a really special experience and so it's a three-day ride we ride into dc we meet up other riders so 45 riders turns into 600 riders that turns into survivors a line you know lining a road and waiting for you with your family members uh there's I'll, I'll just say this there's no dry eyes you know from the motors from the riders from the family it's an extremely emotional experience um and uh was really honored to be out there with my team members do you have your own ambulance that follows along, or how does this work? Your own no. gurney? Do you have to bring yeah. your own gurney? Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> my job is like having uh, 1,175 teenagers that I worry about, and so I was excited <laughs> to be there with my team, but I was also in a dad role, worried about everybody every day and making sure that the motors were safe and all the riders were safe and that we got everybody through each leg of the journey. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to report there was only two crashes and no significant injuries. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a legit, you know, we have sag wagons. So if somebody has a mechanical or they get injured or they need a moment because it's just become too much, then we can put them in a truck or a van and then let them get out to the, at the next stop. Well, good thing I wasn't with you. We'd still be out there. <laughs> we were still, you know. <laughs> the 10-mile mark. <laughs> the, what I love about cycling, and I tell people, cycling is a sport of suffering, really. It's it's uh, when you're on a four-hour, five-hour bike ride, and you're riding up Mount Lemmon, or, you know, and you, you your legs are telling you you want to stop, and your mind's telling you to stop, um, but your heart keeps you going. And so that journey for us is uh, to support, you know, when you're riding next to someone who lost a family member in the line of duty, um you know, you learn how to suffer a little bit more and you put your hand on their back to help them get up a hill. So you're suffering and they're suffering. So it's a, it's a really unique bonding experience and it's just, um, words can't really describe that experience. Yeah, that's so true. I want to talk to you about this new program we have in Tucson about traffic. If somebody's got a camera Mm -hmm. and they're taking pictures of, you know, traffic violations, tell us about this program and what instigated it. Yeah, so we we first of all we want to make sure and and if you've if you've checked it out on our on our webpage and the link to report bad driving, you know, we don't want the drivers of other vehicles doing that. So it's it's a great tool for a passenger in a vehicle to or uh, to take out a camera and, and and record. But the idea is look, we live in a world where um you know, it, it nothing refutes a a, a video. Right, so whether that's a body worn camera video on an officer's chest, or it's a it's a, a camera footage, cam. or dash cam, or a public facing camera, which are everywhere, right? And so this was just us moving in and in and continuing to think about how to smartly use technology and uh, another mechanism for someone not to have to call nine one one because it's not necessarily an emergency. And really, the idea in the program is for us to it's not that it's going to generate I don't think a bunch of citations, but it generates a hey you know, your driving behavior is unacceptable as a Tucsonan and you can do better. And we're, you know, uh, somebody complained about you and we have video. So we, we could in theory come out and cite you. That's not the goal. The goal is to modify driving behavior. So that's just the next evolution that you're going to continue to see from this department of ongoing partnerships with the community, um, and business owners and residences to allow us to have access to camera footage. Um, and also I'm, I'm driving, you know, and collaborating with the city on safe, creating safe spaces through public facing cameras, uh, and especially in areas like downtown where we have a, a dense population of people, you know, for example, on second Saturday, and we want those to be safe spaces. So I think this town's ready for that in accepting of, you know, we're not looking to be a big brother police department. What we're looking to do is, um, to keep, criminal element out of out of our town and and let them know if you're going to commit crime or or be badly behaved there's going to be accountability that comes with that it'd be easier if they wanted to commit a crime if they made an appointment 
Yes. Yeah, and make the appointment outside of Tucson. <laughs> yes, <laughs> go someplace go else. Go someplace else. <laughs> that would be fun. Are you hiring? We are hiring. So join TucsonPD.org. So the, we uh, we have a, a public safety fair at the Doubletree Hilton on, on uh, May 23rd coming up. That's 270 South Church from 11 to 1. You can come out and you can meet your full public safety team, which is police, fire, and emergency communications. Uh, the really cool thing is all of our departments can hire you at 18 years of age. So parents listening in, you're ready to uh, have that child maybe move out or start paying rent. We can help you with that. <laughs> Uh, send them over to us. We will help you raise your 18-year-old uh, who thinks they're an adult and thinks they have it all figured out. I know this because I have one. Um, and uh, I tell you what, you know, we have some amazing jobs. You can you can be a, a call taker at the 911 center. You can start with the fire department, or you can start with our community service officer position. And we have other professional staff positions as well. But I tell you, you know, for PD specifically, um, you know, you can start at, in, as a community service officer straight out of high school, making more than the median income in Tucson, and that's a pretty cool thing. And not only can we start you with an amazing salary and benefits package, but once you're off probation, we're also going to pay for your education. And again, I have a, call, a son in college, and uh, I, I tried to actually talk him into the public safety um, one of one of the three options here, and he decided to go to college first. So I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> as a dad, say no to that. It, but it's backwards. <laughs> it is backwards. So yes, yeah, so we're um, CSO position. The community service officer opens up May twenty second. Our lateral uh, officer position opens up uh, June 26th, and our police officer recruit position opens up July 31st, and our starting salary for police officers is uh, is right above $58,000 right now. So, And staff's going to be getting a little bit of bump uh, here in July. So continue to be appreciative of the support of mayor and council, giving me the tools I need to continue to uh, aggressively recruit uh, and retain the amazing staff that I have. You know, you can't have two competing priorities, so my first focus is retaining the team members that I have because they're special, special individuals. I have a lot of time committed to this community and we have a lot of time committed to them. So that's been really my number one focus. My number two focus has been recruiting. You have an amazing team and uh, Law Matters just acknowledged your SWAT team. They did a record number of call-outs last year, 255 call-outs. And that might not sound like a lot to the listeners, but that's over and above the regular job. Yeah, we've, we have very few full-time team members. And so with the staffing that we have right now, we just, you know, one day, uh, a utopian world, we'd certainly have a full-time SWAT team. And much like a professional ath- uh, athlete team, you spend, you know, 90% of your time training and 10% of your time deploying. Well, these these individuals actually, you know, have primary day jobs. They're detectives, they're officers, they're, uh, they're spread throughout the organization. And then they're on call. You know, they do train uh, very frequently within, you know, their work week, but they're on call and they spend a lot of their downtime if they're not on call out at the Firearms Academy, uh, uh, keeping physically fit. Um, And so it's uh, a, I've always been um, a huge admirer, you know, throughout my career of the SWAT team and just a sacrifice that it takes to be on that team and be so committed to it. So they're a special team. Like you said, we have a regional team for, for all their departments that contribute in the community. And, uh, and then we have our own just because we're just that busy. So yeah, 365, uh, days in a calendar year and in over 250 deployments. In fact, they're out uh, today working on a full call out. So, um, sometimes the work never stops. What does it take to be a SWAT officer? Do you have to, is it a separate application? Do you sure have to is. qualify for it? Tell yep, us the process. Yep. There, so you have to have over, th- you have to have your three years on the department. So we want you to become well-rounded and have some, you know, some maturity there. 
Uh, and then after that, there's a testing process, and it's it's a physical physical uh, test, but it's also you have to go out and you have to demonstrate firearms proficiency and and sound uh, tactical decision making and a shoot no uh, shoot decision making, and it's a really tough process. So the 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 SWAT team puts a lot of work in helping people prep for that test. So there's, you know, training days where, where if you're interested in that, um, and it's like any recruiting effort, you know, you really, you, you look around and you say, okay, that person might have the capacity and, and you start engaging them and getting them excited and letting them come out and decoy and do different things. So, so it's not just a six week process. No, it's a no. continuous thing that they have to go through. It, not only is it continuous to even just get on the team, but it's uh, it's it's continuous once you get on the team. And there's you know you just you don't join the SWAT team and you're not on the entry team day day one. Um, you might be perimeter. You work your way in. There's you might be at the command post. I mean, there's a lot of different jobs. Like any part of our organization, I like to tell you know use this the the old stopwatch analogy. If you you know a pocket watch, if you pull a you know pocket watch out you know from the 50s and you pull the face off of that. There's a lot of different gears uh, under that glass, right? Yeah. That those arms attach to. But if it doesn't matter if it's a big cog or a small cog. You move one of those little gears out of that. What happens? Yeah, it does. The arms stop turning. Yeah. And you know the SWAT team is a really good example of that. I, I love nothing more than going out and watching a deployment because there's a ton of activity. It's almost like watching an ant hill. Uh, a lot of different things going on, <laughs> but everybody knows what their task is. And the other thing that I I really love and appreciate about the SWAT team is um, the way that they debrief situations. And so because we're dealing with human beings in unpredictable environments, things don't always go as planned. In fact, rarely do they. Uh, And so it requires um, a a really strong constitution to hear what you screwed up or for you to admit that and say, hey, look, this was a plan, but I didn't execute perfectly or I struggled here. And then when I struggled, it caused Frank to struggle. And so they really value that personal ownership of of recognition of, of, of your own mistake or failure and then how you learn as a group and then you're better the next time because what that translates into is a safer deployment in the next deployment and we try to model that in patrol when we have high risk calls that happen and it's a team effort always a team effort even if you're not on SWAT if you're just answering a call and you've got more than you know who, what your partners are going to do because of all the training sure and our hostage crisis team you know so for today we have a full call out which includes a hostage crisis team and probably includes our, our some of our bomb guys going out with one of our robots uh, or drones, we use, you know, we deploy technology. So it's not just, you know, what we, you know, uh, the, the big GI Joe, uh, what we kind <laughs> of envision with SWAT, right? Uh, there's a lot of different components. There's a command post. Somebody's got to go pick up the RV. They got to get out there. It's going to be hot today. We have to think about hi- how we're going to keep everybody hydrated, how we're going to rotate people in, how we're going to rotate out. There's probably detectives that go out and there's, you know, investigators within the, the hostage crisis team. But who are we talking to? I mean, the ultimate goal is to safely resolve a situation, which they do with amazing results, amazing results. Um, I'm talking pro, you know, Michael Jordan level results at the free throw line results. Um, And so that comes with a lot of moving parts and a lot of training and a lot of technology and everybody coming together to for game day to make make it a safe outcome. So I know several agencies have a SWAT team. How many of your SWAT members are on that team too? So that that's what I was discussing. The regional team has the surrounding 10 jurisdictions. Uh, so DPS has their own team, uh, the Department of Public Safety. All of the other surrounding or, uh, agencies down here in Tucson, which would be Sawadita, Marana, Pima College, U of A, Oro Valley, um, 
uh, all of those folks are going to contribute to the regional team and the sheriff's department, of course. So the sheriff's department leads that effort, but all of the smaller jurisdictions have the ability to have team members on the regional team. So we work with them. Um, so, for example, if the regional team gets a call out and they've been out for 24, 48 hours and they need relief, then they would call a TPD SWAT team in. Um, or let's say, you know, we have a training day where we need to pull our SWAT team out of deployment. Then I can call the sheriff and say, hey, hey, Chris, you know, our team's going to be down for the day. Can your team cover? Yeah, no problem. And so we, that's how okay. we interface. And then, of course, there's federal, federal tactical teams. So, you know, if there's going to be a really big, let's say we have a, you know, a, a year-long uh, investigation on a criminal syndicate or, you know, high-level target and then and, and the federal, you know, ATF's involved and FBI's involved, we actually might have multiple teams coming in, you know, to do a, to, to, to serve search warrants on five houses simultaneously. And that takes federal teams, local teams, all collaborating together. That sounds pretty complicated, but I'm glad you're in charge and not me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it is. Uh, I, I tell you, I, um, I spent a few years of my career doing undercover work and having the honor to work with all of those teams and, and b- contribute to some of those days where, you know, you have, you know, five or six different uh, uh, search warrants being served simultaneously. And it's, uh, it's like an orchestra. You know, it's a lot of planning to make it come together, but it's beautiful to see when it all comes together. And, and again, most of those days you know, happen without any use of force. And, and it's just, and that goes to the level of professionalism that all the team members that we've been talking about, you know, dedicate to this community to make that happen. That's pretty amazing. And I, 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 yeah, I saw you guys, if you go to lawmatters1030.org, go to our above and beyond page and you'll see photos of some of the SWAT guys and they're, they're receiving a, a challenge coin. Awesome. So, Let's talk about drugs in Tucson. Do we have a drug problem here, or do they just like swoop through on I ten and go up to Phoenix? No, we certainly do. We have a we have a fentanyl, you know, crisis on our hands, and we're we're not unique um, in this country. As a thirty third largest city in the country, and our proximity to the border um, has just made fentanyl extremely accessible. And so, you know, street value on fentanyl right now is it can be anywhere as, you know, depending on volume of, of what you're purchasing can be down in the dollars for a pill and, and, and even cents if you're buying that bulk. Um, that is in part correlation to our proximity to the border. Um, uh, the, the state of Arizona, I think, seized more fentanyl than, than all the other states combined oh, last wow. year. So it is a problem. Uh, we are a corridor. Um, it, 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 it's not a political statement, but we have... You know, it's it's coming across, right? And so the you know uh, the accessibility of the way that it can come, whether it's on humans or it's in semi trucks, you know, coming across, it's the the cartels are very smart and 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 it's uh it's profitable. Um, and so it gets complicated. You know, I always say, um, do we have border security issues? Absolutely. Do we have issues with you know the federal government and not working? doing enough to, you know, impact cartels or impact the precursor drugs coming into Mexico? Absolutely. But here's the deal. We have the demand here in the U.S. And if we didn't have the demand, we wouldn't have the problem. So we can point fingers at people or we can recognize we have a demand problem and what are we going to do about it? So um, one of the things that we have, um, you know, fentanyl is absolutely driving our unsheltered population. It is such an addictive drug and it's a chemical, you know, what, what makes it easier for the cartels to make it is you don't have to grow anything. You just have to get the precursors and put it together. So in my 23 years of public safety service, I've never seen a drug like this. And again, I've got over, you know, five years of experience focused just on drug work. Um, You know, if you were an undercover 10 years ago and you want to go buy drugs, 
um, or work your way up through an organization. It, it took some work or it took a confidential informant. There's parts of town right now, you know, if I took my uniform top off and my gun belt off that I'm wearing today, um, I can go to parts of town and within minutes buy fentanyl. Um, and so it's just everywhere. And so, you know, my, my call to action to the community is have the conversation with your children. Um, if they're in grade school, you, you're, you know, you need to have it. If they're in high school, you're late on having it. Um, it's, uh, it, it is, you know, fentanyl is being used to lace uh, marijuana, um, other drugs now to increase potency. Um, it, the, the overdose rate is shocking on this stuff. It's a really dangerous drug, and it can impact anyone in any part of Tucson, not just the city of Tucson, any part of Tucson, and, and you've got to have the talk with your kids. What are the gummies? I hear people talking about gummies. Is that fentanyl or is that something else? Most of the gummies that you're referring to are, are marijuana. But, again, if you know, depending on you know, what I tell people is, look, if you, know, if, if you want to go purchase a marijuana gummy, then knock yourself out and go do that. But make sure you're getting it from a distributor or somebody that you know there's some level of 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 care for what's going in that product versus buying it from or getting it from a friend or somebody you don't know because there's a possibility at this point that there could be fentanyl in that fentanyl in it yeah we have a caller in charles what's your comment well it's actually a question chief kesmer i really appreciate your being willing to uh, take a lot of questions about this and also that you're leading from the very very front it's really what tucson needs in the police department um my question is with fentanyl being so easy to make in terms of what you just said, you know, the just all you need is the components to put it together. And I realize what you say about the demand it creates the supply, but I wonder if this if this level of supply and this ease and cheapness of supply does not in fact create a demand that wouldn't be there if it weren't so cheap and so easy. Yeah, it's really the chicken or the egg question right um and there's certainly truth to what you're saying what i would what i would tell you both as a parent and a chief of police and you know a native of this community is this country has a thirst for for drugs that no other country has it's unmatched um we have mental health challenges uh it goes into you know you know it's difficult to raise a child cell phones have made you know accessible information even more difficult for parents um so it, so it's the perfect storm. It really is a perfect storm. And COVID, right? I mean, COVID changed the world as well. So, um, And then you add uh, just the profitability for the cartels on this stuff. So it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. Uh, I'd, I'm really proud of the, the city of Tucson and Pima County taking a, a metropolitan response to this uh, this issue and saying, okay, what are we going to do? So, for example, right now, there's opiate dollars from a from a settlement that are going to be coming our way through Pima County. One of the things that I'm encouraging leaders to think about doing is, you know, what are we doing to educate or invest in the youth to know that they have to stay away from this stuff? So when we, you know, we talk about housing first, which I support, or a community safety, health, and wellness plan that the city's done with really focusing efforts on the folks that are in crisis out in the community. It's the public-facing symptoms you're seeing. Well, the reality is that's the crisis at hand, but that's a symptom. And if we don't start focusing on root cause issues and, and eliminate future generations being uh, either predisposition to use drugs or have mental health, uh, um, you know, challenges that lead them to then using or coping with with uh, medications or alcohol. I just think I don't see this problem getting better. So I'm not here to just maintain. I'm here to try to help this community solve issues, um, and so that we're smarter in the future. And we and and you know, we're not sitting here ten years later having the same type of conversation. 
I once observed a, along those lines, I once observed a plain clothes unit at a uh, quick trip on uh, Wilmot and Golf Links that dealt with uh, a homeless guy that was being a problem to the quick trip. Is that a particular unit of TPD, or was that one of the other? He was wearing a vest that said police, but plain clothes other than that. Yeah. Um, that was probably our committee response team that you saw, which is a team. It's a tactical response team that each patrol, four patrol divisions have. They can be in uniform one day or doing plainclothes work like you saw, dealing with a, a business complaint or a community complaint. And, and that was one of the units that I had the opportunity to lead as a, as a first-line supervisor, as a sergeant. Here's what I'll tell you. Um, here's my philosophy on, on – and, and I actually have family members that I've lost in this town uh, to, uh, to heroin – I had an uncle who passed away from heroin. I have a, a, a sibling who is a recovering addict from uh, opiates. So again, this can impact anyone. You know, this year we've had over, over almost 1,600 narcotics arrests, uh, and 122 of those were for sales, and we've had 81 deflections. When we arrest somebody for narcotics and we take them to jail, that arrest does not fix the problem. You don't. You don't fix somebody's addiction to a drug through arrest. What, what, I, what I'm hopeful for is that we can leverage that arrest to folks who aren't ready to treatment, which will, is a deflection program. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there's programs we have um, in this community um, that we can leverage that arrest and say, hey, look, we'd like you to go to treatment instead of jail, instead of staying in jail. What do you think? And that's what we can leverage. And so when somebody's on fentanyl right now, they need a chemical support and psychological support to come off of that drug. It's it's hundred times the strength of morphine. People can die from from the withdrawal process, or if they don't withdraw appropriately from it, and then they go right back out to the community, to you know, release from jail, and they go right back into using the same amount that they had been using, but they've been now off of it for you know two two months. Can uh, we can have overdose deaths that way as well. We had nearly I think over five hundred opiate overdoses in Pima County last year. So it's just really a um, it's really a tragic uh, situation, and it's you know it's preventable. But it's a, it's it's all hands on deck. We need to be talking about it at home. We need to be talking about it in schools. We need to be talking about it in work. Um, I'm collaborating with the Laura Conover at the Pima County Attorney's Office with the sheriff. I just took a tour of the jail. Um, it's hard for the for the depart for the sheriff's. Um, department to keep fentanyl out of the prison out of our jail uh because it's easy to it's you know if you if you've never seen what fentanyl looks like imagine a blue Sudafed pill and that's about the size of of what we're dealing with here and if anybody does have a problem you have a family member that has a problem if you go to lawmatters1030.org website go to the agencies where it says dea there's a whole list of agencies that can help you get off the the, met, the drugs and, and recover from this. So thank, thank, yeah. you, thank you for calling in, Charles. Great point, and I'll just close with, we have some great partners, uh, nonprofits, many nonprofits in this town that focus on Kodak and, and the CRC. Uh, there's, there's any hot, you go to any hospital. Um, if, you, if you are ready, if you have a family member that's kind of hitting bottom and they're actually ready for help, and that's the difficult part. And ready again, I've help. been through this with family members. <laughs> if somebody doesn't want help, it's, you know, it's hard uh, for our staff to to encourage them to to get them, and that's what I tell people is, you know, a lot of the folks that you see that appear to be homeless or unsheltered, they have homes here in town, but their family has actually said, until you change your behaviors, you're not welcome back. And so the officers every day have the ability out in the field right now to either, you know, if they come across somebody with fentanyl, to arrest 
or to take them to a deflection program, which is actually where we take them to treatment and we drop them off. And then we lo- we don't do anything with the narcotics other than long form that case and then destroy and don't make the arrest. So that is the best option if somebody's ready for it. It's just getting people right at that very moment where they are ready for help. When they're ready That's and they the have challenge. to be ready. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Daylight is fading and the temperature is dropping. You're not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. Sarsi is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I dot org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. This is Nathan Chabin, producer for Law Matters. I have a goal to reach, and I need your help. I want to put the DEA out of business. That's right, the Drug Enforcement Agency. If you have an addiction problem or know someone who does, please reach out to lawmatters1030.org and click the DEA tab for more information. Reaching out is the first step. We have the resources if you have the will. You can beat this demon and help me put the Drug Enforcement Agency out of business. Hi, this is Sherry from the Law Matters Live Radio Show. Next week, the founder of the Raven Team tells us about their work to stop sex crimes against children. So get your questions ready and call in at 520-790-2040. Law Matters is a 501c3 funded by your donations. Visit our sponsorship page located on lawmatters1030.org to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Chief Chad. And we want to talk about, we're talking about drugs. I know the cartel have been hiring youth to drive illegals through town on I-10 and through Sierra Vista. Has this affected Tucson at all? Do they get on our streets or is it just strictly something that happens on I-10? Yeah, about three months ago, I I took a tour down at the border with the Cochise County Sheriff's Department and Major City uh, Chiefs Association with three other chiefs, and just to go get a tour. And that was one of the conversations they talked about. The primary the cartels are primarily targeting youth in Phoenix, um, and they're doing it via app, Snapchat, TikTok, um, and and it's it's fairly lucrative. And the crazy part is some of these kids are as young as twelve and fourteen years of age. Uh, and the problem is that. Um, they're being told basically don't stop. You know, if you, if the police try to pull you over, don't stop. Just so you can imagine going. a 12 or 14 year old in a vehicle with other human beings um, hidden inside of it and driving at reckless and high rates of speed can often end up with tragic consequences. So we're not seeing a whole lot of that here. That again, it's a corridor. It's, you know, it's I-19, it's I-10, it's Ajo, depending on if they're coming through some different parts of the reservation um, uh, land. So, 
again, it goes back to all hands on deck moment for we're 17 different uh, school districts in Pima County. So it requires us working collaboratively as public safety and with those school districts to really say, okay, how do we, how do we really tackle this? Um, it's not just active killer conversation. It's not just drugs. It's not just, you know, the cell phones and the access to information that it gives to our youth. You know, they have computers at the tips of their fingers now. It's just scary. And we, that doesn't even talk, bring up an artificial intelligence, right? That's a whole nother, right. That's know, a whole, whole nother, nother conversation. Whole nother conversation. <laughs> but so what it goes back to is I still think that youth engagement is a foundational solution to a lot of the problems that we have in our community. Um, we have a poor community, right? We have a, you know, we have to recognize we have double the poverty rate nearly of the rest of the country and poverty can be a driver of crime, uh, when there's not opportunity or somebody doesn't think they have opportunity. So, so what do we do about all of that? Well, you engage youth. That's what you do. So, you know, we've been rebranding. It's been no secret that public safety profession has been under immense scrutiny and sometimes for just cause when we see things like Memphis PD and sometimes, um, sometimes not when things are sensationalized. And so, you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, rarely does media get, get paid to, uh, share the full story of something. And so True that's that. created an environment where police departments have to create their own brand and create their own narrative. And that comes with genuine connection and, and relationship building. And that starts at a young age. So we have a couple different ways of doing that. We're very involved with all of our schools. Uh, we don't have a, we, we've moved away from the, the school resource officer program. We call it now the set, which is student engagement team member. Um, and we're trying a bunch of different things, including using our CSOs and some of the uh, middle schools. And so not just using officers, but also using our CSO partners. And the idea is to form those connections with Tell them what the CSO means. Community service officers. Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and so when we hire those folks, you know, um, they're, we're using them in a lot of uh, non-traditional areas. So we're re- really rethinking and going, okay, what do you not need a gun and a badge to do anymore? And we're building a whole another segment of our team. So we're over 100 community service officers now. We're going to build that up to uh, 150 in the, in the near future is, is one of my goals. Um, I'd like, I think there's a future where we could see, you know, our goal could be 900 police officers and 300 community service officers. It's a little bit of a grow your own philosophy. And so we can get people in before they've made their decisions on what they think public safety is because based upon what they've seen on TV, and we can also help them make good decisions from that 18 to 22 years of age where sometimes we don't make decisions or we make decisions that, that might impact their ability to be hired by us affect the rest of your life and it's not just be hired by a law enforcement it's be hired by a lot of different companies sure yeah and you know look there's a we live in a world right now where where college is amazing and there's no downside and certainly what i told my son but there's a lot of amazing professions that you don't need a degree for at this point in our country and we're we're one of those and and so it's to you know to work with school leadership to identify the kids who don't have the means or aren't ready to go to college. And we say, Hey, we've got this great job for them. I mean, I started working for the city of Tucson in 1996 as a lifeguard. I spent the first four years of my time with the city as a lifeguard (laughs) part-time, part-time in the winter, full-time in the summer. And, uh, and so I tell people, you know, you never know where your journey is going to start and end with the city. And, you know, here I am 27 years later with the, with the city of Tucson. And, um, I never thought as a lifeguard, I'd be the chief of police one day. But here you are. Here I am. And it's constant, constant training and education. And even, I don't care what career you go into, you're going to have to do continuing ed to keep up. This yeah. is a fast-moving world. It's a fast-moving world. And really, our profession, it's, uh, I, I, I choose not to use the, you know, I'm, I push back on the word reform. Um, uh, I think we're ready to recognize that 
like all professions, it's evolution, it's growth, it's it's being relevant with the service that we provide. And so um, there doesn't have to be a negative connotation with recognizing, um, you know, we're, we're, we are absolutely in a growth change. And, and in that is alternative response changes, right? So that is scaling, you know, calls being pulled off from the emergency communication center where clinicians are now dealing with that. So I love to have communication um, both here in, the, in town and at a national level too. And I say, okay, no, you know, our police academies are nine months long, you know, between the police academy, four months, uh, which is a basic, another month of post-basic and a four-month uh, field training. What job do you have in this world anymore with nine months of training? And that does not meet the expectations that we have for our police officers in this country. And then yeah. we give them a gun and a badge and a lot of responsibility and a camera, and we're disappointed when things don't go perfectly. Yet you have two years to get an associate's degree. You have four years to get a bachelor's. You have another two years to get a master's. And largely you might not have many skills once you do those things other than applying your, you know, showing that you've been dedicated to learning and you know how to write and you know how a to do A lot of book learning. Yeah, and a lot experience. of book learning, but then you have to go into the real world and apply that knowledge. <laughs> no street smarts. Right, where we do nine months of training and then you are applying that knowledge, but then you're learning continuously throughout your career and there's a risk with that. So right now, for example, we have such a young organization through our own attrition challenges, like most police departments in this country, where over 50% of, of the staff in patrol right now has less than 10 years on. Wow. Uh, and that's a big number. So when you, when you start thinking number. about risk management and teaching people how to drive and multitask and, and not thinking about their retirement, into, the whole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, um, you know, one of the other ways that we, we start building relationships younger is through our Explorer program. So if you have a child, uh, or someone in your life, or you know somebody who could benefit, it's a program that we have for, for folks that are 14 to 20 years old. They have to have a C or better average, a grade point average, but you can check out more at Tucson PD Explorers at TucsonAZ.gov. Uh, and it's a, a, a program where we teach them a little bit about the police department. We teach them a little bit about physical fitness. Uh, we just recently had our police memorial. They're, that's an event where they come out and they help set up chairs and they help um, you know get people seated and, and with refreshments. Uh, but it's a really great way to get kids involved with our organization at a young age and really to see what this profession is about and uh and give back to the community so what are some of the things the kids will do besides being assisting and i know you know if there's an event they're at the event and they're helping people amazing kids very polite very you know yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am you know what can i do for you you name it. Um, if you go, you can actually, if you go to your Instagram and you just type into some police explorers, you'll find uh, we do a, a, a fairly good job of, of keeping information up. But you'll see in there, we put them through traffic investigations. We'll put them through, you know, point control. We do. We we basically get them exposed to what, what a career what could look job. like at the police department yeah. and whether that's starting as a community service officer. So it's a really natural progression from a, uh, an explorer to a community service officer. Um, to one day maybe being a police officer or just having a great professional staff career, which you can have at our department. And Explore, there's no, it's not like a four-week course. It's it's ongoing, It's right? ongoing. Yeah, it's, uh, think of it as a, it's an extension of, a, of, a, of an extracurricular activity that you'd have at school, except it's with the police department. Uh, much like the military um, does with some of their programs with youth, in uh, our OTC, it's just an it's an aversion. We're looking to continue to scale pups. that. Yeah, and you know what I'd like to see one day is this program evolve to even a, a almost two different age groups where you know really as young as you know eight to fourteen, and then maybe that fourteen you know to to eighteen plus. They really category. need to think about that because kids are so smart. 
especially they with are. the with the apps and the telephone and everything. Isn't there a way that parents can block certain apps off their phone, or do they always find a way around it? The kids are hard. I mean, again, I've got two of them at uh, one not at home anymore, but one at home. And uh, yes, he is pretty creative as as much as even saying, hey, mom, can I use your iPhone for a minute? And the next thing you know, he's increasing his allotted time on his phone. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I struggle to keep up uh, with the technology of the kids. There's certainly plenty of apps to help you do that. You know, it's one of the things that we really work on and in, in, in is being engaged and present in the moment, whether that's our any any team member that we have, including the explorers and, and managing that. And like any other aspect of your life, you have to manage how much time you're spending on your phone. And that's setting up timers so kids, you can actually see, even as an adult, you know, or as adults, we're addicted to these things. So sure. we shouldn't be shocked that the kids are having a difficult time. Yeah, they're watching it. you do it. One of my favorite times is when my, my son messes up big enough to get grounded and he loses his phone. He's so much f- more fun to be around, right? <laughs> they're engaged, they're happier, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a balance. What, at what age should a child have a phone anyway? And shouldn't they just have flip phones that aren't, aren't uh, what do you call it, internet capable or smart? One, one day when I retire, I, I keep threatening I'm going to go back to a, to a, flip, a flip phone. A flip phone. Um, you know, again, I as a chief, I don't want to overset my bounds in giving uh, parental advice. I think that's <laughs> unique to every every child and their level of maturity. Um, I certainly gave the oldest one, my oldest son, a phone too quick, I think at 12. And I think we drug our feet to um, a little bit later with our, with our, no, it was younger than 12. But anyhow, I learned on the first one, as we most of us do. And then, you know, you're the second one, you apply, you're just like, yeah, you apply those <laughs> lessons learned on the second one, but uh, yeah, it's it's individual, but uh, and you know, the, even even there's smart watches now, right, where the kids can have limited phone access to emergency contact via a watch and not actually have that phone. But you know, I think what parents run into is all the other kids have them. Yeah. So what do you do? You have a great kid, they don't have one. All the other kids do. So a lot of conversations. I mean, I think we overcomplicate the things that we, you know, whether it's a policing you know, conversation or a community relationship conversation or in your personal life, what it boils down to is engagement. Yeah. Right. It's taking the time to have dialogue, not in a text, you know, not in a Snapchat, but, you know, to look another Actually, person in the face and have a conversation and, and have that engagement so that you both know what your ex- expectations are from each other. I remember giving my son a phone. It's for emergencies and he ordered an emergency pizza. So <laughs> Sounds like it could be an emergency depending on the time of night. <laughs> it's like, okay. Okay, it was in the news that Target CEO, they said they're seeing all these violent incidents in their stores and they're going to be, I mean, it's costing retail. It's not just Target, it's Walgreens, it's all of them, a lot of money. How do we combat the things that are going on? I I don't think we have what's going on in L.A. where they have these flash mobs, they run into a place and, you know, clean it out like the seven-year locust and come out and they can't be caught. We're not, we're fortunately not seeing there here, but it has happened up in Scottsdale okay. uh, to Apple stores and, and jewelry stores. And we have seen some of that. So we have not fortunately seen that here. Uh, what I would say is um, box store, especially large box store, you know, cr- crime, theft, low level crime, you know, th- you know, some of the things uh, that, that we're struggling with in the community, it does impact uh, business and businesses have closed and smaller businesses and even box stores. And make no mistake about it, you know, the, 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 the theft and you name the store, Lowe's, Target, Walmart, uh, Home Depot, that's all passed on to the consumer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and when you have to have armed security outside, 
that's passed on to the consumer. You know, all those costs are. So, um, you know, nothing's worse than me going home and my wife um, telling me that she had to watch somebody shoplifting in one of our box stores in the city of Tucson. And that's frustrating for her and it's frustrating for me and it's frustrating for the store. So a couple different things that we do. We try to work with the box stores and we have, again, the one of the units that we talked about was a community response team. We have other officers called Zebra Officers who do proactive work. Um, one of those places would be our, our retail theft. And so we target, it's typically a small amount of people doing the majority of the theft. And so we try to target those individuals and then we work with the Pima County Attorney's Office to actually present felony charges and we stack. So if there's six different shoplifting thefts and we know the amounts of those, we'll, we'll stack those so it reaches the felony thresholds. Again, a lot of these folks are, are stealing to support habits and that's tragic and it's unfortunate, but we can't live in a world where you can just walk into a store and, and, and walk out of it. And you not, exactly. And so um, is, is you know, long-term incarceration as a strategy yeah, I guess it can be. It's it's not the best strategy. And again, if they're not, in, if you're not investing resources when you do that, you're not gonna. You, you shouldn't expect a different product out when that person gets out of incarceration. So it's it goes back into our mental health conversation. It goes into substance misuse disorders. Trying to break um, that cycle. Yeah, it breaks the cycles, and we really need to be thinking about. You know, the I know the the sheriff's been publicly talking about the need for a new jail. That jail was built 40 years ago, and again, I just took a tour with you know one of our council members to learn more about that process. And it wasn't built 40 years ago to meet the demands and the com- complexities of fentanyl, drugs, COVID, you know, the an amount so of violence. So if they build a new new jail, are they going to have separate units? Here's, here's your drug addict section where we can get you treatment, and this is where you are, and here's our whatever other crimes, you know, murderers. Or- so so they've, <laughs> we separate those folks out now, um, okay. and uh, I often joke with the sheriff that I'm, I'm very appreciative that the jail's his, not mine. He, he, <laughs> yeah. he tries to sell it to me for a dollar, uh, and, and we have some fun with that. But the reality is it's a really complex um, uh, part of his organization to run. And so there's been a lot of conversation about uh, fentanyl deaths in the jail. And and those, you know, any death anywhere is tragic. Uh, and and he has a, a population that goes through there of, of I think, over 30,000 folks that come through the, in and out of the Pima County Jail a year. And so when we're have you know, they're just a byproduct of what we're seeing in the community. So if you're having more fentanyl deaths, you know, in the community, you're certainly going to see some impact or that uh, in the jail. And his numbers are, are actually much, much lower than that's been reported in some of the recent media. Again, sometimes the media doesn't always capture all of the all of the details of a complex conversation. That's so, true. yes, the, a, a new facility and there's a, a committee that's put together to evaluate this. Would the idea have an that's not necessarily uh, the idea is not to build, you know, double the size of the population of the jail. The idea is build a facility that recognizes the complexities of what we're dealing with, with substance misuse disorders and mental health challenges. People are sitting, you know, and then there's a cash bail bond that, you know, component of that too, where, you know, if, if you don't have money and you can't bond out, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should be in jail. So that's a conversation we have to continue to have as well. And the other complexity of all of this is that contrary to belief, not the chief of police and not the county attorney and not the sheriff, but the judges are the ones who decide whether or not ultimately, initially, for the most part, somebody stays in jail or not. You know, certainly the, the, the county attorney has the ability on initial appearances to make some of those recommendations and decisions. But far too often we leave the judges out of this conversation and they have some responsibility when we they talk about police reform. They need some reform <laughs> themselves uh, and they need to work with us. And, and, and they, 
you know, they're, they're, I'll be candid. Sometimes it's a difficult group to influence because they're up for, you know, election every four years and they're, they're, they're only really accountable to themselves or the constituents that vote for them. And people need to remember they're up for election. We, <laughs> you we, put them in or we out. We do have the ability to keep great ones and move folks along that are not ready. That, exactly. You know, all we're asking for from the public safety team is um, collaboration, mm-hmm. right? And let's talk about what's working in the system and what's not. Right. And when, you know, we have people in the Pima County jail for six months because they need a mental health evaluation or there's been, you know, or for weeks or months because they have um, failure to appear warrants um, that they can't. Again, they don't have the cash to to bond out on. Those are parts of the system that we have to continue to talk about. Try to fix. Try to fix. Right. And it's going to take all of us to fix it. It takes a village. That's why I really like this new program with the traffic violations. And I thought of it. Yesterday, when this lady almost T-boned me running a red light and I was making a left turn, and I stopped because I, I just said, she's not going to stop, is she? And she didn't. So, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> I'll like, tell oh. you, we, uh, uh, when I was a motor uh, many, many years ago, I think 18 years ago, uh, we had uh, over 50 motors, and we have 19 today. Wow. Uh, and they do an amazing job. In fact, I recently just got recertified, so I can occasionally go out there with them and, and, and do some other, other, other ceremonial things with them in the motor unit. Um, and it's helpful for me to just remember the complexities of being connected to the troops who are actually, actually doing out there doing the work. And it's a complicated job, and it's a dangerous job. But I'll tell you, um, traffic safety, again, in this town, we, we still have a sh- shockingly high number of fatalities. Many of them are preventable if we'd all pay attention and we'd all stay off our cell phones. And just mm-hmm. like you, just because you have the green, it doesn't mean you shouldn't look left and shouldn't look right before you go. Um, left turners are still a huge problem and claim the lives of motorcyclists every year in this town. Again, yeah. it's preventable. Um, it, you, you know, and you're not getting there any faster. Yellow doesn't mean accelerate. Yellow means stop. Um, And to be thoughtful. Now, that's not just a police problem, right? And our our Department of Transportation does a great job of leading the charge on on a lot of education as well. So we're going to continue to be out there doing enforcement. Uh, I think we're uh, we're trending up again this year. We've done over um, over ten thousand uh, contacts and citations and warnings and uh, with drivers this year. We're going to continue that. The goal is uh, not to create revenue. I know there's. I'll just say that because that's a a question I get asked. Uh, I don't actually ask our staff to go out and write tickets. I ask all of our staff, not just traffic, but our patrol staff to have contacts. And they, they have the autonomy then to make the decision. Is, you know, the stop enough, you know, just with the contact and the verbal warning? Do they need a written warning or do they need to be the higher level of education with the citation? Oh. And so the officers have the autonomy to make that decision and they're doing a fantastic job with it. But you, we can't cite our way out of this problem. This is a a culture issue here in Tucson. We, we, you know, if, you know, Tucson is a special place to live, work and play. And we, you know, we all own part of, you know, keeping our roads safe. It takes all of us. Give us an idea, a day in the life of a police chief. What's your typical day like? That is, <laughs> where do I start? Um, first questioning your life decisions. Uh, I, 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 I tease the fire chief Chuck Ryan pretty frequently. There's a lot of, there's not a week that doesn't go by where I tease him and been like, man, I should have been a fire chief. <laughs> um, what I love about my job is there's, there's no, and I love this as an officer and I loved it as a sergeant and I loved it as a lieutenant and a captain and a deputy chief and now the chief of police is every day is different. 
And although I have a set schedule and it says I can look, you know, I often don't look out 48 hours past my, 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 my day because it gets overwhelming and I just can't retain everything that's going on uh, that, you know, much further out than that sometimes. Um, but I love that every day is different. And I love that my job allows me to connect, you know, with a bunch of different human beings, whether that's within yeah. my own department, within sister departments, within the community. Um, I, I love being part of the profession at this moment in time. You know, there was a moment, you know, during, you know, George Floyd and, and, and moving forward where I really paused like most police officers in the country and thought, you know, does anyone really recognize, understand, or appreciate the complexities of our job? And maybe it's not worth, you know, being the potential of being one of the 250 people who gave their lives up to do this job. Um, but this isn't a profession that's not, you know, you know, full of victims. The people that are in this profession today are committed, you know, post George Floyd, you know, when, and when we see something like that happened in Memphis, you know, it's, it shocks the senses for all of us, you know, and the death of Mr. Nichols there, that, that was, that, that was in a, a police use of force issue. That was dirty cops, you know, that would, that tarnished the image of the entire country. And so we have a responsibility as, as chiefs across this country at a local state and federal level, I get to have a platform and a voice on that, not just here in Tucson, not just here in the state as a being on the board of Arizona Chiefs of Police Association, but as a major city chief, uh, we're one of you know eighteen thousand police departments in this country. We're one of seventy, and we get a voice at a national level to say, okay, yeah, we fairly need to grow or reform or evolve in this space, but this, but this over here, we need to be invested in. Yeah. And so I just I have a lot of pride every day that I that I get to wear this this patch, the Tucson Police Department patch, one hundred fifty two years of heritage that I get to wear on my shoulder. And there's a lot of responsibility and honor that comes with that. So my, my schedule is so crazy that I have to actually, you know, I, we created a pathway for my wife to have access to my schedule to see it herself because I can't explain it. <laughs> so, so it takes about four, four direct team members uh, uh, in the chief's office to help me manage all the different things that we have going on with, with the calendar. So again, I was in DC last week. I'm back in town this week. Um, you know, um, I'll have, other travel this summer that I have responsibility. And sometimes people say, Hey, well, why are you, why do you travel? Well, um, grants, <laughs> grants don't just magically appear. Right? right. And so the city, um, is a general fund budget. Uh, public safety draws a huge, huge component of that. Um, they're doing the best job they can to support us. It's not enough. Uh, just like our home budgets, you know, we, we, we always want to do more. And, and if you want to do an addition or paint your house or plant a new tree, it costs extra. Yeah. And so when we're, you know, when we need more police cars or we need more uniforms or we need, you know, programs like the public safety partnership, which was a federal grant that we went after three different times, that doesn't just happen. That comes with trips out to Washington and meeting with, with different, different political folks, uh, and, and working to make sure that we get the resources we need here in Tucson to make this community safe. It takes a lot of work and thank God you're doing it and not me. I'm so grateful. I want to thank you for coming on and, and taking the time to visit with us and explain everything to the listeners about how the police department works and everything that you're doing. Hats off. Thank you for doing everything you're doing. Thank you for your service. And you brought your sidekick, Carrie, your, your bodyguard. <laughs> My sidekick, Frank, he's always with me to make sure I'm not missing anything. I, you know, he's, you know, he's a good example. Let me just say, I get to be the face of, of this department, but we have a lot of special people that actually do the work and, and make this happen. 
Uh, and so, and he's one of and them. And he's one of them. And so, I just, I'm lucky. I have an amazing team. And uh, in Tucson, make sure the next time you see to see any officer in Tucson, not just TPD officers, thank them for what they do. That goes Say a long thank way. Thank you, absolutely. Until next week, shop local, stay safe. Next week, the founder of the Raven Team tells us about their work to stop sex crimes against children. So get your questions ready and call in at 520-790-2040. Law Matters is a 501c3 funded by your donations. Visit our sponsorship page located on lawmatters1030.org to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. KVOI Cortero, AM 1030, the voice of Tucson.